Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. It's great to be with you. And uh, I know that you also have uh, people streaming in on video and other sites, so welcome to those folks as well. And I'll tell you, in all my years of speaking and teaching, I've never had a video introduction before. So that was kind of cool. I didn't know Spence was going to do that. So I got to tell him later, hey, thanks for the shout out on the video. Whoop, that shout out on the video introduction. Really appreciate that because that is um, fun for you to be able to hear from him. And we've become friends over the last year or two and really gotten to know each other and just so thankful for his ministry. And, you know, I've heard a, a lot about what's going on at Mercy and just the exciting things God is doing here. We've been able to worship here a couple times and just really thrilled to see the spirit at work in this church and in this city. And I love getting to know Spence. He's come over to the seminary a few times. We are right around the corner, just right up the road. Come say hello sometime. In fact, I live, our family lives just like two minutes from here. And so this is just a wonderful place to be with you this morning to worship and just to share God's word with you. And yes, there is a Tar Heel connection. So I've got to just own that. And uh, that may be bad news for some of you. I don't know. But nonetheless, there it is. Now, you today are starting a new series in the Gospel of John. And I'm thrilled for you because this is going to be really something special. I imagine most of you have read the Gospel of John and certainly heard quotes and citations from the Gospel of John. I don't know how many of you ever done a full-length, in-depth study in the Gospel of John. But if you haven't, I know you're in for a treat. Not just because you're going to have good teachers here, which you do, but you've got great content, and that's the key. The Gospel of John is a beacon. It is a light. It is a light shining in the Bible. My job today, my, the job I've been tasked with by Spence, that's a pretty big job. I mean, he told me to do it. He's like, look, I want you to introduce the entire Gospel of John. Um, and I want you to preach a sermon on the whole book. And so I've preached sermons on individual passages before, but I, you know, preaching a sermon on the entire book, what do you do? Well, I have a plan today, which I'll unveil in a moment, but it's customary when you preach from a passage to read the passage, but I'm not going to read the whole Gospel of John today. So I have one passage for you, and I want to read this because this is John's theme verse. And one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that he tells us why he wrote. And this theme verse is going to be something we're going to come back to before we're done today. So let me read this. Listen close, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless our time together today. Here's what it says. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to bless as we start this wonderful gospel. Lord, thank you for those words. They're certainly John's words, but they're more than John's words. They're your words to us, the words of life through Christ. 
And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what's so special about this gospel. Why is the gospel of John so distinctive and so unique? Give us that insight today, and may this be a helpful foundation for the rest of the series here for this church. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So a number of years ago, this is back when I was a college student, I was leaving a football game. And of course, I was at UNC, so we probably lost that football game. (laughs) Regardless, as I'm leaving the football game, I'm probably a sophomore in college at this point. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus. And leaving the football game, I'm getting rustled around the crowd, and it's tight, and everyone's pushing and shoving and trying to get out of the gates. And I can see up ahead, there's people standing there handing out things. And as the crowd makes their way out, they're taking whatever is being handed out. I'm looking up over the crowd trying to think what this might be, and I can tell what they're hanging out. It's, it's too big to be a tract or a pamphlet. And on the other side, it's too small to be a Bible or anything like that, or even a complete New Testament. It's this small, tiny little book they're handing out. So as I make my way up the front, I'm thinking, what in the world is this? And sure enough, I get up there and someone hands me this little book and I take it. And as I'm making my way out of the stadium and the crowd, I open it up. Inside, of course, it's not a tract, it's too big for that, and it's not an entire Bible, it's too small for that. It's not even just the four Gospels, it's one book. Of the entire Bible, this group, probably the Gideons, I don't know who they were, probably someone thought that everybody leaving this football game, if I could give them one book on the planet and one book only, what would it be? And it was the Gospel of John. I thought that day, and I still think today, that's an incredible thing to think about. Have you ever pondered why? I mean, you've got 66 books to choose from. You've got people coming out of a stadium. You're going to give them one book only, and you hope that it's one book they'll read. If you can take one book from the Bible, which one would you pick? These folks thought it was the Gospel of John. I suppose you've probably thought that yourself. You know, it's the old standard question. If you're stranded on a desert island and can only take one book of the Bible with you, which would it be? Almost everybody would say something probably much like that, which is the Gospel of John. There's something different about this book, isn't there? Every book in the Bible is inspired by God. Every book in the Bible is wonderful in its own right. But this book, this book stands out as distinctive among God's people. And it's been like that for generations. And I'm going to point out some of those things today about it. So what is it that makes it so special? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out Believe it or not, seven things this morning in our short time together that make the Gospel of John unique. Now, as soon as you hear seven, you're thinking, man, we're going to be here all day. You won't be, trust me. I'm going to move quickly through these seven, okay? But seven things that make John distinctive, unique, or stand out among our four Gospels and really among many of the books we have uh, in our Bibles. Now, the number seven is not arbitrary. You probably already know, well, seven's a good biblical number, right? Pops up all kinds of places. But you may not know this, that seven's actually a favorite of the Gospel of John. It's actually a favorite of John as an author. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, there's sevens flying everywhere. And then in the Gospel of John, you may not realize that the entire Gospel of John has all kinds of sevens. The entire structure of the Gospel is built around seven big miracles, which John calls signs. There's seven of them. You may also know in the Gospel of John that he often has Jesus declaring his own identity through what are called I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And on it goes. Guess how many of those there are? Seven. So I'm going to riff off John here a little bit this morning. And I'm going to go with seven as the number of things I want to take you through. And hopefully when we're done, you have a better appreciation for John's gospel, because that's the whole point for the next few months when you're in this series. 
and certainly, hopefully more than that, you have an appreciation for the message, which is amazing and wonderful. Okay, seven things. Let's start with the very first one. First thing you know about John that makes it unique is it's the last gospel. It's the last gospel. Some of you probably know this intuitively. We have four gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What you may not know is that in the early church, they regarded the order in the canon as the order in which they were written. Now, there's some scholarly dispute about whether Matthew was first or Mark was first. We'll not deal with that today. But almost everyone knows, everyone agrees, and all the church fathers understood that when you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written first, and then there was a gap of time, and John was written last. In fact, best we can tell, the date of John's Gospel is probably somewhere in the 80s of the first century maybe even in the early 90s, which makes it not only the last gospel, which you may not know this, actually makes it one of the last books written in the entire Bible. In fact, the only book that we for sure probably know that was written after John's gospel is the book of Revelation itself. Now you may wonder, well, why does that matter? Why do I have to know that? Well, a couple of reasons. One is you're studying the gospel of John. You should know it's the last gospel written. That's a fact you should probably have tucked away somewhere if I'm introducing this series. But above and beyond that, you should know that this matters because this explains a lot about why John's the way it is. I'm going to talk more in a moment about what makes John different. But I think we can say that John is arguably the most developed, the most mature theological reflection about Jesus in the entire gospel collection, if not the entire Bible. At the very end of it, John could look back and see the entire landscape. All the Gospels are true, all the Gospels are inspired, but there's something about the Gospel of John that makes it sort of this beautiful, full-orbed, well-rounded, crowning achievement in the Gospels. It is the culmination of all of John's theological reflection, because here's the other thing. John was not just the last, last Gospel written, but the author, which I'll say about something about in a moment, is actually the last apostle living. So you have all the apostles have died but one. And all the Gospels have been written but one. And then John says, I got one more thing to say. This book, the Gospel of John, is unique. Okay, that's the first of seven things. Let's look at a second of the seven things. John's not only the last Gospel written, but secondly, it's the most personal Gospel written, the most personal Gospel. What do I mean by that? Let me say a little more about the author, John. John, as you probably know, is the title attached to this Gospel, but it's also the name of one of the apostles, one of Jesus' disciples, known as John, the son of Zebedee. Had a brother named James. Together, we learn in the Gospels that they were called the Sons of Thunder. Don't you love that title? I was like, it sounds like a wrestling team or something. I don't know what these guys did. But John and James were the Sons of Thunder. And we know that John was one of the most intimate disciples of Jesus. You may not know this, but in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the the, the authors, and we know who those authors are, are sort of in the background. They're telling the story, and yes, in the case of Matthew, he's one of the disciples, but as far as the narration goes, the authors never mention themselves, never talk about themselves. They're just sort of the distant third-party narrators, in, for the most part, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John includes himself in the story. It's very personal. In fact, he has a name for himself, and you'll see this as the series continues. John refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved in other translations. It's an interesting term. Some people think, well, that sounds a little self-promoting. You know, is John like saying, well, I'm Jesus' favorite. Thank you very much. No, he's not saying I'm Jesus' favorite. To say I'm the beloved disciple is a way of saying, look how much 
grace has been showered on me. Look how much I've been loved. Look how much I've been forgiven. It's not so much I'm Jesus' favorite, but maybe I'm the greatest recipient of grace, or I appreciate it so much, I can see myself as nothing other than the one that God has showered his love on. And John's beloved disciple character is all over the narrative. He's in the beginning of the gospel, in the middle of the gospel at the Last Supper, he lays his head on the chest of Jesus. Man, talk about a sign of intimacy. Now, you may wonder, well, how do you lay your head on someone's chest? How does that happen exactly? Well, remember, they're around the Last Supper, and we tend to envision Last Suppers of people sitting in chairs, but they didn't eat meals in the first century around the table and chairs. In the first century, they would recline at the table. Literally, they would lay down on cushions around a centerpiece that had the food, and that meal would take hours. And what does John do at one of these moments of intimacy, and meals were very intimate in the ancient world? They're laying there for hours, and he leans over, and he puts his head on Jesus' chest. It's a very personal picture. But here's the thing. At the very end of the Gospel of John, this beloved disciple tells us something amazing. When I say it's personal, and he asserts himself in the story, the beloved disciple tells us he wrote it. Listen to these words, John 21, 24, the very end of the book. Here's what it says. The beloved disciple is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, why does that matter for you? Well, you need, it matters for you because you know who wrote the gospel, but it matters for another reason, is that this tells us the person who wrote the gospel was really there. The person who wrote the gospel was an eyewitness. This is not fabricated. This is not made up. This is not concocted. This is not someone's sort of dream. This is a person who was actually there who knew Jesus firsthand. And it's not just that he knew Jesus. It's not just that he was there as an eyewitness. He was arguably one of Jesus' very best friends who loved him, who laid his head on Jesus' chest. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus, in effect, authorizes him to tell his story. Go out, preach, and tell my story. So in the Gospel of John, you have a personal, eyewitness, authoritative biography of Jesus. Now, if you want to think about, can I trust what I'm learning here in this Gospel? Yes, look at the author. The author was boots on the ground there. You can trust what he says about the person of Christ. This is We have every reason I think this is one of the most reliable gospels we have historically, and we'll come back to this more uh, in a moment because it's so important to understand how personal this gospel really is. Third thing I want you to know about the gospel of John. It's the most loved gospel in the history of the church, the most loved gospel. Now, as you hear that, you may think, man, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are getting short shift today, you know? They're They're not giving their due credit. No, they're wonderful gospels too, but you know, when you look at the Bible, not every book is as popular as every other book, and not every gospel is as popular as every other gospel. Why were those people handing out that little gospel of John at the football game I was at that day? Well, probably for the same reason that if you were to pick a gospel, you'd probably pick John. And for generations, Christians throughout the history of the church have felt John as something different and something special. And then when you look back in the very early centuries of the church, we also know that John was one of the most, one of the most popular gospels around. How do we know that? How do you know what gospels were the most popular? Well, part of it is when we see the church fathers citing gospels in the early church, it can tell us how much they read certain ones as opposed to others. That tells us how popular a gospel was. But there's another way. One of the other things you may not know is that we actually have manuscripts of these gospels, physical copies that scribes have made. 
And the number of manuscripts we have tells us about the popularity of a book. The number of manuscripts left behind tells us about what books were valued and read and most importantly copied because they were loved so much. Spence mentioned in the video that I wrote a book called Canon Revisited, which is sort of one of my areas, the the development of the New Testament canon in the early church. And one of the things that stands out in my research, and I'm not the only one to notice this, is that when you look at these manuscripts in the early church, it is overwhelming that the most copies we have of any gospel are the Gospel of John. People loved the Gospel of John. In fact, just last week, literally a couple days ago, I wrapped up a class at Reformed Theological Seminary on the New Testament canon, and I had my students read, together in class, a photograph, color photograph, of our earliest nearly complete copy of John from the second century. This is a manuscript called Papyrus 66. You're thinking, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. P66 is what it's called. But there we read this gospel of John. And they're like, well, how many copies are there? I'm like, more copies of John than any other gospel in the early church. It was one of the most popular, most loved gospels. And there we sat together and read in Greek from the second century manuscript, the prologue of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And my students thought to themselves, wow, it sounds just like our Bibles today. I'm like, that's the whole point. It's exactly like our Bibles today. It hasn't changed at all after all these years. So not only do you realize that you have a gospel written by a personal friend of Jesus, an authoritative eyewitness, you can have confidence that the person you're reading knows what they're talking about, you also have confidence that this is the most popular love gospel in the church and the most copied and reliably copied and transmitted over time so that the words you read now are the words that were written then. When you read the prologue now, that's what they were reading then. My students saw a second century copy. It's the same exact words. Gospel of John can be trusted. The entire Bible can be trusted. But since we're talking about the Gospel of John today, be reassured, this is a book you can rely on. I mentioned a fourth thing about the Gospel of John that makes it special. Is it the most unique gospel? The most unique gospel. We have four gospels, as you know. I think you also know that three of them are very similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and one is really different, John. Reminds me of those little kid things. One of these is not like the other, right? Which of these does not belong? Well, he does belong. They all belong together. But there are differences. There are things that make them unique. You've read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very similar in feel and tone and stories. The same general pacing. The same general, there's exceptions to the same general narrative outline. In fact, scholars look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together as a unit, and they call them the synoptic gospels, which just means they're kind of the same. But then there's John. John is the most unique, and this is what makes it so wonderful. Early church fathers knew this. There's a church father by the name of Clement of Alexandria who was so smitten with John's gospel that he referred to it as the spiritual gospel. Isn't that interesting? He said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke sort of deal with more earthly things. John deals with more spiritual things, heavenly things, and you'll know that that's the case. And We'll talk more about that in just a moment. So what makes John so unique? What's so different about it? I bet you some of the most beloved stories you read in the Bible, you may not realize, occur in John, but occur only in John. We mention a few of these. The wedding at Cana, Jesus' first public miracle, 
He's at a wedding, changes the water and the wine. That occurs in John, yes, and only in John. How about the conversation with Nicodemus? I'll come back to this later. If a man wants to enter into the kingdom of God, must be born again. One of the most famous stories, one of the most impactful dialogues, only in John. Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well, and they have a conversation. And he's like, go get your husband. She goes, well, I don't have a husband. And then they have this conversation about who the Messiah is going to be. And Jesus basically says, well, you know, if you had asked for living water, I would have given it to you. And you would never thirst again. And there she is standing at a well. And Jesus says, and she says, well, Lord, where is this water so that I can get it and drink and not have to come back? And basically, and not these words, but basically Jesus says, you're looking at him, right? I am the living water. Or how about the story of Lazarus and his death and resurrection and how Mary and Martha were so sad and they told Jesus, where were you? That occurs in John and only in John. How about the washing of the disciples' feet? We have accounts of the Lord's Supper and all the Gospels, but only John gives us the washing of the disciples' feet. Can you imagine how much less rich our vision of Jesus would be without the Gospel of John? Of course, it's more than just the stories. It's also the style. You probably know that when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's fairly clip along at a fast pace. Each story is about 10 to 12 verses, and then it ends with a saying of Jesus, and then you're on to the next story. I tell my students all the time that when you read, so when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're like reading an action movie, right? And by, by, what I mean by that is that there's, there's teaching, yes, but not huge chunks of it. If you have a red-letter Bible, when you read the Gospel of Mark, there's not typically big, long chunks of red. It's action, story after story after story. Then you get to John, and guess what? It is almost all red. What John does in his Gospels, he pauses He said, yeah, you've heard these other stories. They're out there. I'm aware of those, John would probably say. But I'm going to give you a deeper dive. So in this, Jesus gets long chapters, usually on one topic, to extrapolate and teach and go deeper. How thankful should we be for the gospel of John? Of course, you should know that because John's different, modern scholars have jumped on it and said, therefore, it can't be trusted. You may know this. One of the big things that scholars say is, yeah, well, maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke have some truth in it, but John, he's so spiritual and so different that you can't trust him at all. Don't believe that for a moment. Scholars have shown time and time again that, yeah, John's different, but differences don't equal contradictions. Differences are just differences. The other thing to keep in mind is that when we look at John's gospel, man, I wish I had time to go through this. The, the, the evidence in John's gospel for his awareness of just the geography of Palestine or even the topography or even the names of places and cities, I mean, this guy knew his stuff. This is not later and made up. So to, don't, don't take differences as a reason to distrust. Differences show us how rich the character of Jesus is. There's so much more to say. John just gives us more than we ever thought could be said. In fact, at the end of his gospel, he basically says, not all the books in the world would hold all that could be said about Jesus. Fifth thing I want you to know about the gospel of John. It's the most theological gospel. Most theological gospel. I've been building to this, but let me now explain what I mean. This doesn't suggest for a moment that the other gospels don't have theology. Of course they do. It's not to suggest they don't have really good theology. Of course they do. But as I've already hinted at, the gospel of John has this depth. 
It's like an ocean. You can wade in the shallows or go deep down into the depths. It is amazing how rich its theological articulations are, particularly about the person of Jesus. Now, John has lots of theology, but I think we all could say that when it comes to the theology of John, the thing that stands out the most is he is the clearest, the most plain, the most direct about the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is not just a good moral teacher. He's not just an ordinary human. He's not just a guy who walked around the ancient world and said cool things, right? That Jesus is the incarnate God in the flesh visiting his people. In fact, the very beginning of John's gospel shows this, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, of course, in that context is Jesus himself. So Jesus goes through the gospel of John, and he's unequivocally plain that, yes, I'm a human, but I'm a human that is visiting you in the flesh because I am God incarnate among his people. In fact, he's debating with the Jews in John 8, and they argue, well, look, we don't believe anything about you. And Jesus says the phrase that's amazing, before Abraham was born, I am. And I am is a sign of the divine name. It's the very name that God gave Moses uh, on the mountain in the book of Exodus, when Moses said, you want me to go to the Egyptians and set your people free? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And then Jesus in John 8 says, and that's me. How do we know that he claimed to be God? Because after he said, before Abraham was born, I am, you know what his people around him did? They started looking for rocks to stone him. Because <laughs> he was a mere man claiming to be God. I don't know if you realize this, that John's gospel then is the culmination of the entire biblical story. What has God been wanting to do since the very beginning in the book of Genesis? Be with his people. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with us as his people. He wants to be close to us. And if you know the Old Testament for promise after promise after promise, God says, someday I'm going to pay you a visit. Now, by the way, if God says he's going to pay you a visit, that... That's good news and scary news at the same time, is it not? You're like, you're going to come here? I mean, you're not just going to stay out there. You're actually going to be here among us. That's a scary thought. It's a wonderful thought. It's also a terrifying thought. Jesus comes as God enfleshed. What does that tell you about God? God is the great pursuer, is he not? God is the great lover. God is the great saver. God goes after us when we don't go after him. When we don't chase God, God chases us. God so much wanted to dwell with people, not as people, sinful people, rebellious people, people who didn't want him there. Remember what the prologue says, God, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And yet he shows up because he loves, he pursues, and saves. It's one of the most theological gospels around. Okay, at least the sixth thing I want you to know about the gospel of John. It's the most Old Testament gospel the most Old Testament gospel. Now, that's, you think that's a strange way to talk about the gospel, right? Isn't the Old Testament over here and the gospel over there? What do I mean when I say it's the most Old Testament gospel? What I mean is it's the gospel that's the most rooted in the story of the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfills it. Now, the other gospels do this too, particularly the gospel of Matthew, okay? But John does it in all kinds of fascinating ways that illumine who Jesus is. I don't know if you realize when you read the gospels, and this is true of John, that the Gospels don't present the story of Jesus as a new story. They present the story of Jesus as the end of a very old story. Okay? There is a story that's been going on 
from the dawn of time, captured most aptly in the story of Israel, and it's a story without an ending. It's a story without completion. It's a story where things haven't been wrapped up, where God's promises haven't been fully realized. It's a, it's a story of people waiting for God to do something. And what does John do in his gospel? And again, the other gospels do this to a degree. He says, all that waiting, all that longing, all that hoping the story would have an ending, all hoping that God would finally redeem his people, that's all come to be realized in the person of Jesus. What you realize then is that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And John makes that abundantly clear. What does John call Jesus? And only John does this. He calls him, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God is an allusion to the Passover festival, which is based on the Exodus itself. Basically, our author is saying, you know, all those Old Testament stories, whether it's the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, all those find their culmination and proper conclusion in the person of Jesus. He fulfills the entire Bible. The story has its proper ending now in the glory of Jesus. What an amazing gospel the gospel of John is. Of course, that brings us to the final Seventh and last one, and this is the build-up, and this is the one that I think you know so well, but we want to end on it here, and that is John's gospel is the most plain gospel, the most plain gospel. What do I mean by that? When I say plain, I don't mean ordinary. That's obvious by now, I hope. They don't mean that. What do I mean by plain? I mean plain about the path to eternal life. How does a person go to heaven? How does a person get saved? What does a person do with the problem of their sin? How is that dealt with? All the Gospels give the answer to that. But I think we all know that there's something about the Gospel of John that just lays it out there, as plain as it could be, that there's no other pathway to heaven, no other way to have eternal life than through Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. John 3.3, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. How about, everybody knows this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then the very verse we started with, John 20, 30 through 31. These things are written, why? So that you may believe. Let that sink in for a moment. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the place to end today on the Gospel of John. Seven wonderful things about the Gospel of John. It's the last Gospel, the most personal Gospel, the most loved Gospel, the most unique Gospel, the most theological Gospel, the most Old Testament Gospel, but all that leads up to the last one, the most plain Gospel about the way one has eternal life. And that's really the decision all of us have to make, right? Do we believe? Some of you are here right now and you already believe and praise the Lord for that. Some of you are here and you're not sure whether you believe. My prayer is that you stick around for this series because you will see God's glory through Christ shine in rich, amazing, wonderful ways. And you will see more than anything else that there is no path to heaven, no path to eternal life other than through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're so thankful for this amazing gospel, the gospel of John. How varied, how special, how distinctive, how unique it is. Lord, it's so special. I pray these folks here would sit back for the next few months and absorb it in this series. But Lord, I pray even today that if there's some here who don't know you, have not yet believed, 
realize they can trust this story of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners, and that he's the only way to heaven. We pray all this in his special name. Amen.